What explains President Trump's behavior? Why did he not take immediate action in a time of crisis? Because President Trump's plan for January 6th was to halt or delay Congress's official proceeding to count the votes. The mob was accomplishing President Trump's purpose, so of course he didn't intervene. President Trump did not fail to act during the 187 minutes between leaving the ellipse and telling the mob to go home. He chose not to act. Yes, he did. At least that's the story they told. Special coverage of day eight of January 6th here. Scared in case I fall off my chair And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs Clowns to the left of me Jokers to the right Here I am stuck in the middle with you Yep! From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake, California. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio, on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico, on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle, on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us for another edition of our special coverage of the House January 6th committee hearings. Just 11 minutes after he returned to the White House from his Stop the Steal rally speech on the Ellipse near the White House, urging supporters to march on the U.S. Capitol, then-President Donald Trump learned that the January 6, 2021 protest had turned violent, according to new details presented Thursday night in prime time by the House committee investigating both the attack that day and all of Trump's many failed attempts to steal the 2020 election. But instead of harnessing the power of the Oval Office after he had heard that violence had broken out, instead of harnessing that power by ordering the military or police intervention or exhorting the rioters to go home, Donald Trump continued to fan the flames of discord. He remained focused on trying to steal the election, even as his aides implored him repeatedly to stop the violence. He wouldn't. And he didn't for more than three deadly hours as our nation's system of governance, our capital and hundreds of lawmakers inside of it came within 
mere feet of being faced down and potentially harmed by Donald Trump's rioters. Many of them armed. All of them lied to about a stolen election. Lied to by the man in the White House dining room at that point who refused to honor his oath of office to the country and to the Constitution in what the bipartisan House Select Committee on Thursday night characterized as almost certainly the greatest dereliction of duty by a sitting president in this nation's history. Instead, he demanded a list of senators' phone numbers to try to cajole them into not certifying the legitimate Electoral College results, showing that he had lost the 2020 election. He resisted aides and friends and family members and their repeated entreaties to make a public statement condemning and calling off the insurrectionists. And finally, at 2.24 p.m., the same moment that members of his national security staff were learning how close rioters had actually come to Vice President Mike, Mike Pence within mere feet, Donald Trump tweeted that his second-in-command was a coward. Welcome to Bradcast Special Coverage, Day 8 of the House January 6th Committee's public hearing. At one point, Republican Vice Chair Liz Cheney described them as Day 9, which would uh, include an earlier public hearing by the committee. Desi Doyen, that was back in July of last year. Oh, wow. No wonder we had trouble remembering Almost it. a full year ago. Yeah, where he had some of the Capitol Police, where they had some of the Capitol Police officers uh, giving testimony. I would say definitely giving testimony that was very emotionally wrought because they yep. went what they went through yep. on that day. Yep. But it was day eight of this year's series of summer hearings in any event. The committee has now vowed there will be more in September after this series, they say, and after its parade of insider Republican Trump-friendly witnesses that uh, has apparently resulted in many others coming forward to give testimony now to the committee as well. The dam has begun to break, said Liz Cheney, near the beginning of Thursday night's incredibly uh, informative and evidence-dense hearings, its finale to its summer blockbuster series. Despite desperate pleas from aides, allies, and Republican congressional leaders, and even his own family, Trump refused to call off that mob on January 6th. Instead, quote, poured gasoline on the fire as two live witnesses, Matthew Pottinger, uh, Trump's former deputy national security advisor, and Sarah Matthews, his deputy White House press secretary, each characterized it during their live testimony on Thursday night. He aggressively uh, tweeted his false claims of a stolen election, celebrated uh, his crowd of supporters as, quote, very special. But he would not call them off, not for hours. And then the next day, after the smoke, rubble and dead bodies had been cleared from the Capitol and Joe Biden's Electoral College victory had finally been ratified by Congress just hours earlier in the wee hours of the morning, Trump declared anew during never-before-seen outtakes from his brief videotaped January 7th address to the nation, quote, I don't want to say the election is over. No kidding. The panel documented how for some 187 minutes, over three hours from the time Trump left a rally stage sending his supporters to the Capitol, 
until the time he ultimately appeared in the Rose Garden video that day to tell supporters that he loved them, they are special, but they should go home. Nothing could compel the defeated president to act. Instead, he watched the violence as it unfolded on television from the dining room near the Oval Office, where he ordered there to be no photographs and where all White House switchboard call logs and presidential diaries had been shut down for hours. The president, who loved nothing more than public attention, wanted no public attention at all during what would prove to be the most critical and pathetic moment of his failed presidency. President Trump didn't fail to act, said Republican committee member and Iraq and Afghanistan combat veteran Adam Kinzinger. He chose not to act. Kinzinger, along with a fellow vet, Virginia's Democratic Congresswoman Elaine Luria, led the bulk of Thursday's information-packed narrative and questioning of witnesses. The defeated president turned his supporters, quote, love of country into a weapon, said Liz Cheney at one point. Donald Trump made a purposeful choice to violate his oath of office, she charged. The committee aimed to show a minute-by-minute accounting of Trump's actions with new testimony, including from those two White House aides, Pottinger and Matthews, who ended up resigning on the spot on January 6th. Behind-the-scenes discussions at the White House and never-before-heard security radio transmissions of Secret Service officers fearing for their lives. Throughout that whole time, Trump never called any law enforcement, any military, any anybody at Homeland Security or anybody else who might have defended the Capitol as it was attacked for hours on his watch and at his direction earlier in the day as videotaped testimony from his top generals and national security officials made clear. So are you aware of any phone call by the president of the United States to the secretary of defense that day? Not that I'm aware of, no. Are you aware of any phone call by the President of the United States to the Attorney General of the United States that day? No. Are you aware of any phone call by the President of the United States to the Secretary of Homeland Security that day? I'm not aware of that, no. Did you ever hear the Vice President, or excuse me, the President ask for the National Guard? Did you ever hear the President ask for law enforcement response? No. So as somebody who works in the national security space and with the National Security Council, if, if there were going to be troops present or called up for a rally in Washington, D.C., for example, is that something that you would have been aware of? Yeah, I would have. Do you know if you asked anybody to reach out to any of those that we just listed off, National Guard, DOD, FBI, Homeland Security, Secret Service, Mayor Bowser, the Capitol Police, about the situation in the Capitol? I am not aware of any of those requests. No, sir. No, sir. None. No requests. Trump didn't fail to act. He chose not to act. Joining us today to wrap up our summer series special coverage of the blockbuster J6 public hearings is a fine panel of two old school bloggers who have been, well, right about just about everything for about 20 years at least. Our old friend Richard R.J. Eskow, longtime columnist and host of The Zero Hour on radio and TV, joins us today. Oh, Richard, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. 
Great to be here. It's been too long. It has been. Uh, also, uh, as as uh, you may have guessed, our uh, undisputed, never missed a day, January 6th special coverage champion, the one and only Heather Digby Parton, award-winning opinion and an- analysis journalist and all-around swell gal from Salon and Digby's Hullabaloo, is back with us today. Welcome back, Heather. It uh, It looks like you made it through all eight, but the hour is still young, I guess. Yeah, so far so good. Let's just put it that way. Good enough. Glad to be here. As if all of this is not enough to talk about today, uh, i got a lot of questions to ask you about, uh, a lot of audio to play, but we also have some breaking news on uh, the fate of disgraced former Trump aide Steve Bannon uh, just within the past few minutes. So let me very quickly get Heather's hottest of hot takes here. Heather, uh, Steve Bannon found guilty by a jury on Friday of both counts of criminal contempt of Congress for refusing to answer his lawful subpoenas by the January 6th committee for testimony and documents. He's now facing a minimum of 30 days in prison for each of the two counts and a maximum of one year for each. So anywhere from 60 days to two years in prison for Steve Bannon, unless he can somehow overturn this on appeal before his October sentencing. Uh, He promised this would be, quote, a misdemeanor from hell for Nancy Pelosi, Heather. Not so much. Well, it's a misdemeanor for he- from hell, but for him, right. <laughs> not for Nancy Pelosi. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't think anybody's surprised by this. I mean, you know, who 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 in America gets to just ignore a subpoena and go, no, I my I, I'm not doing it. You know, you you don't get to do that. Well, That's Mark, just not Mark, how it's done. Mark Meadows, Dan Scavino, apparently they well, got to. There are there are many questions about that, and uh-huh. we'll be very curious to, to find out if we ever get find out exactly what the what the rationale was for that. But you know, as for Bannon, I I, I think he wins either way. I got to tell you, I mean, first of all, he the, wins. The department, yeah, I do, and I'll tell you why. The Department of Justice. I mean, just to get this out of the way, the Department of Justice had an axe to grind with Steve Bannon. I mean, they had a big case against him mm-hmm. up in you know, I mean, uh, against you know the the build the wall fraud. Case, yeah, he was, and and they they did a lot of work on that, and they were getting ready to to put him on trial, and Trump pardoned him on mm-hmm. the last day um, of his presidency. So you know that he had not did not have friends in the Department of Justice. Let's put it that way. So it's unsurprising that they would have, you know that they would have singled him out among all of these. And you know I don't know about Navarro; he's coming up. But um, you know I can see why the Department of Justice focused on Bannon in, in mm-hmm. this particular case. How does he win in all this? Yeah. Because had he won the case, of course, he would have been strutting around like you know Colossus, you know over mm-hmm. <laughs> across the world, um, and it would have been disgusting and horrifying. But losing is actually better for him. He becomes a big martyr. In mm. fact, it's better for him if he goes to jail. I mean, what's the most he spends? Probably a couple of months in some club fed somewhere. And he can just write his great replacement manifesto or, you know, his letter mm. from the from the Birmingham jail. Yeah. Um, and, you know, be this, you know, d- 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 pretend like he's Nelson Mandela, from, you know, his <laughs> MAGA Mandela. I mean, the whole thing is disgusting. <laughs> but I think he wins either way because of that. Because that's his whole shtick, right? I mean, this is, he just, he's an attention... Uh, hog, I'll yeah. say, and uh, and so I, you know, whatever. As far as <laughs> I'm concerned, whatever. as far as I'm concerned, you win with that Maga Mandela uh, name <laughs> there. So uh, you already uh, get points on the board today. Uh, and if, and and all yeah. I can add to that is that if Steve Bannon were still alive, it would be an even bigger deal. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well done, sir. Uh, speaking of which, uh, Richard, uh, you know we haven't we haven't been uh, we haven't spoken to you uh, until today throughout all of these uh, uh, six hearings over the past month or two. So I wanted to get just your broad thoughts on the hearings over overall, their cumulative effect, uh, or any other you know more specific observations you may have up until Thursday's primetime summer finale, and then we'll get into all of that. Well, you know, obviously that's a hugely broad question. You're but, welcome. Yeah, I mean, I guess yeah. that <laughs> you're welcome. Yeah, right. um, I guess I would say for me, and just looking at the public impact mm-hmm. of them, I didn't really feel they, they moved the needle in a big way, meaning people who already hated Trump, which is, you know, President company definitely included, and like-minded individuals, got a lot of confirmation, but I didn't see it moving the needle among others until Cassidy uh, Hutchinson, mm. Mm. who I think that was explosive. Mm. I mean, I think that was, you know, to use the phrase, a game changer. Mm-hmm. So I think that was a big, big deal, and I think that set expectation, I mean, she was like the dream witness, yep. right? Yeah. And, um, I think that sets the bar very high, for especially for tonight, uh, Thursday night. Thursday. Um, so, you know, that obviously gets us to Thursday night's event, mm-hmm. and uh, which I think was filled with a tremendously important information and very powerful information, but I think it suffered from what perhaps a whole series of hearings suffered from, which was a lack of thematic focus. Mm. And uh, I think Cassidy Hutchinson, by her very presence and by the fact that it was a singular individual with a compelling story, life story as well as testimony, uh, worked tremendously well. I mean, the audience could follow her her disillusionment Mm. as you know, as a narrative. But I think the fact that we had two witnesses plus multiple other witnesses, uh, I didn't know what I was being sold, in a sense, sold. The case that was being made to me was it that Trump tried to organize a coup. I definitely was convinced of that, but I was kind of convinced of that before. Was it as the summation seemed to suggest at one point, that we need a new set of rules to prevent this from happening again. Well, okay, but I want more. Was it that Trump should go to jail? Well, I think he should, but I didn't really see that case compellingly made. So, I mean, we could get into details, but I thought there were multiple things in this that just got thrown out on the table, any three of which could have been the focus, any three of which could have been... Uh, and I'm not saying we should just focus on three of them, mm-hmm. but my God, you know, it, it didn't even get play. There should be a whole hearing just on the fact that Steve Bannon, you know, said, uh, you know, even if Trump loses, he's going to say, uh, even if he's going to say he won. Right. For example. Right. You know. Um, ha- well, let me let me that, that kind of thing. Uh, uh, yeah. So, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Finish your thought. So, you know, I was just going to say, I mean, there are a million ways of, we had a lot of uncompelling witnesses, I thought. I didn't think Elaine Luria uh, was a great 
spokesperson, really. Mm-hmm. Seemed like a lovely person, but, <laughs> you know, I, w- I would have just liked to see this driven in an entirely different... I mean, there was an element in this of payback to Josh Hawley and and uh, and McCarthy and others, and, and uh, honestly, I was 100% here for that. Um <laughs> I loved it. I just let me let me let me give uh, get Heather's uh, response to that. Heather, uh, would you like to explain why Richard is wrong? <laughs> actually, I would. <laughs> okay. I, I actually, I thought, I thought they were, I thought they were very well done, and and I think you know for, for different reasons than than the things I, I can understand Richard's criticism um, that you know they were it, it didn't have a, a you know a flow. That I think you might expect for a you know a, a narrative kind of leading to the big catharsis, the big moment where we see that you know Donald Trump was a you know was a criminal and a traitor. <laughs> um, but I I think that they laid out in the beginning how they were going to do this, and I think that they did do it, and I think that it it worked in the sense that there was uh, each each hearing had a particular theme, and, and it went in sort of in chronological order. It got a little bit mixed up just because of events, because of the Pat Cipollone um, testimony mm-hmm. that came so late. And then they kind of, I think, had to rejigger some of the, a couple of the hearings to sort of accommodate that. And they ended up leaving out some things that I, that I think were important, but um, were, you know, they just didn't do it for time purposes. I think they were smart to only do two and a half hours. Or because you know people's attention span. I mean, it's a mm-hmm. Twitter attention span country now, and I, I just I think that they sort of had those wrapped up each episode. It was more like an anthology than a series. You know, mm. I mean, each episode had its own logic to it, mm-hmm. and sort of you know did it add up to you know a big um, you know great uh, you know denouement? I, I don't. I don't think it was intended to do that. I think it was to just present the accumulation of the evidence and to sort of, you know, come each, and they had this anticipation that was built in, which I thought was very well done. I think Donald Trump could learn something for <laughs> from them on how to tease a, uh, how to tease it from Liz Cheney in particular. Mm-hmm. And I think there, there were some, com- you know, I, I totally agree with Richard that Cassidy Hutchinson and you, Brad, Certainly, you know, you telegraphed that from the beginning, saying she was going to be a big star even before anybody had ever heard of her. You were saying that. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and, of course, she did turn out to be the, you know, she's the John Dean slash Vaughn Hall, as you put uh-huh. it, of these of these hearings. And, and also provided a, an inside look at what was going on in the White House that nobody had really seen before. For all the books that we've read about what was going on and all the news, you know, the, the news stories that have been written, there was something about hearing it from a, that person, and in real time, and not on video, but mm. just hearing her there, seeing her being very brave, and look what they've tried to do to her since then, particularly Donald Trump himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, you it, just couldn't help it, it, it's You don't see that kind of behavior very much in politics. You know, that was a bold thing to do, and it, and it was very, very compelling stuff. Um, but I also think there was another person who, by the way, I am not a big fan of, but you got to hand it to Liz Cheney. <laughs> who has also was out there be she was a very compelling um personality in this whole thing she, and she sort of represents something you know in this kind of a on a flip side of 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 Cassidy Hutchinson you know there's another republican who's sort of standing up and saying no i mean 
So Democrats didn't need to be persuaded about this, right? I mean, we all already knew. We understood it. We've been appalled for it by January 6th from the beginning. It's all very interesting and important for history, et cetera, et cetera. But the, I think the people that they're trying to reach there are mainly people who are, you know, aren't particularly committed to politics like we are and don't have the same kind. We don't pay the kind of attention that they do. And by doing it the way that they did it and featuring almost all Republicans, I mean, there were uh, Shea Moss and her mother, Ruby mm-hmm. Freeman. I don't even know for sure that they're Democrats. <clears throat> I assume that they were. Or maybe they're apolitical. But other than that, the election workers in uh, in Georgia who in, were in, so in, terribly sorry, attacked. Yeah, in yeah, Georgia. Yeah. I mean, other than that, this was all Republicans yeah. that they had. So I think to that extent, you know, if there's anybody out there who is persuadable, and you know, there probably aren't very many, but if there were, I think that I think that that approach was very useful. And uh, I think, and it from the looks of the polling, there has been some movement. I mean, there's been a little. It's not a lot, well, but I don't think there's much wiggle room in the electorate anymore it's so polarized let me ask you this uh richard uh well your choice of questions a you can tell uh heather why she is wrong or uh i would put this to you um because you know after these uh where are we uh, eight or nine hearings depending on how you count it it seems to me there is no doubt left to be had that what ended up happening on the capitol on january 6th was the plan and that Trump himself was not only aware of it, but fully in charge of it. He was told, as we learned in the previous hearings, that uh, there was no fraud. He was That was made clear to him over and over and over again. And yet he kept repeating it, even though he knew it was false. And then when it got to January 6th, you know, he was not only aware of what was going on at the Capitol, but he was in charge of it, if only by not taking control of it. Once he lit the fuse telling his people to march on the Capitol and fight like hell. It seems to me the committee has made that case, has drawn that case, that narrative uh, very, very clearly, very, very sharply that I think uh, has illustrated that for uh, the American people who bothered to look in. I would put that a little differently, Brad, and mm-hmm. this is why I do think Heather is wrong, because I-, I would say for those of us like ourselves mm-hmm. who follow this, we saw all the information and it it made it so compelling and so clear that Trump organized and was aggressively pursuing a violent coup against the government of the United States. But they took two and a half hours on prime time, laid evidence out that showed that, and did not put it together in a compelling way Mm. for the American people. We got it because we do this. Mm. But I don't think the average viewer did get it, because every time they would put out a tweet out there that was a blatant call to violence. And then they would cut to four or five dim-witted, low-level White House functionaries, and they would say, what did you think when you saw that on the president's Twitter feed? Well, I, I didn't think it was a very good tweet. And, you know, it was like totally uh, decompressing the moment, totally, uh, you know, losing the thread and you know it i think two and a half hours was either way too long or something but they needed to tighten they needed to focus they needed to really they they had the information and for people like us it will you know 
it confirmed what we always thought, but we didn't need anywhere near as much of the of the witness stuff unless it was really compelling witness stuff. They needed to focus on the testimony that was damning. They needed to show they needed to let, you know, really underscore some of that stuff. They needed to use more uh, media techniques wow. to make it punchier. And, I, you know, I have to say, you know, Heather and I are old friends. You and I are old friends. Mm -hmm. I really felt like we watched two different things. I, I think we did. Let's take a quick <laughs> break. Uh, we will come back with the Scroogey Richard R.J. Escal. And the, uh, I'm just as nice as I ever uh, was. I know you are. No, you are. Uh, and you have every right to be wrong. And, of course, Heather Digby Parton of Salon. <laughs> we'll come back with uh, both of them right or wrong after a quick break. And we will uh, dig into some more of these details. Because there were a lot of them. Richard is, is right. The, you know, they threw everything at the wall in one sense. I mentioned at the top how information-dense this was. There was so much of it. Uh, so to try to make sense of any one piece is difficult, but we will try to do that anyway and look to the broader uh, questions of what this all means, maybe, moving forward. Quick break, and we're back with RJ and Digby and Desi and myself right here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate today. That's bradblog.com slash donate and thanks. Your baby doesn't love you anymore. I would like to begin by addressing the heinous attack yesterday. And to those who broke the law, you will pay. You do not represent our movement. You do not represent our country. And if you broke the law, can't say that. I'm not gonna, you, I already said you will pay. The demonstrators who infiltrated the Capitol have defied the seat of dust. It's defiled, right? See, I can't see it very well. Okay, I'll, I'll do this. I'm going to do this. Let's go. But this election is now over. Congress has certified the results. I don't want to say the election's over. I just want to say... Congress has certified the results without saying the election's over, okay? But Congress is certified. Now Congress is Yeah, right. Now Congress I didn't say over, so let, let me see. Don't go to the paragraph before. Okay? I would like to begin by addressing the heinous attack yesterday. Yesterday is a hard word for me. Just take it out. Ah, uh, good. Take the word yesterday, because it doesn't work with heinous attack on our country. Say on our country. Want to say that? No. no, no, no. My only goal was to ensure the integrity of the vote. My only goal was to ensure the integrity of the vote. 
I don't want to say the election's over. I just want to say Congress has certified the results without saying the election's over, okay? We're back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Special coverage of Day 8, the uh, finale of the summer series of hearings by the January 6th committee. We are speaking with Heather Digby-Parton of Salon, Richard R.J. Escow of the Zero Hour. Heather, uh, what, what did you take away from the from that raw, never-before-seen footage from, uh, from January 7 of Trump sort of struggling to get through that brief, uh, that, that videotaped address to the nation uh why did the committee uh show it was it sort of uh just to poke a needle in the eye of donald trump oh i don't think so i think it was to show that even after the you know the the insurrection the next morning he's out there saying i'm not going to say we lost the election so you know i think i think that it's again and in a weird way that's kind of more of a tease which is that you know it's continued right i mean he has not stopped in fact just this week this or this past week, he he had you know was on the horn to one of the top Republicans in Wisconsin, uh, you know, telling him demanding that he decertify the 2020 election. Mm-hmm. So you know, Donald Trump is still working this, and, yeah. he's still and trying it's to kind of hard it. to understand why, but yeah. you know, he is doing that. And and I think I mean I thought that was fascinating. I really I really have to say because that's something that we've never seen before, and I had wondered. For a, from from the time I saw that speech that day, you know what you know it was like. It reminded me. Do you remember when in, after Charlottesville he came out and gave it like a normal speech? Mm-hmm. You know, one where he stand, condemned it and said it was a terrible thing and mm-hmm. blah blah blah, and then backtracked immediately. And that was when he did the you know there are good people on both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the very famous you know horrifying speech that he gave. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like that where he was sort of giving a speech that he clearly did not want to give. And I remember seeing it that day on January 7th and going, wow, you know, I mean, you can just see that he is seething underneath. And, of course, this sort of revealed even more of that. And I've never seen the outtakes of Trump doing a speech before, Mm -hmm. you know, reading off of a teleprompter and doing a speech like that. So I thought it was very interesting to see that. And the flash of anger at him saying the integrity of, of the vote, yep. bam, you know, and that look on his face. I mean, it's frightening. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've not seen Whoa. that before, that kind of look. And you can't really get that across on radio, unfortunately. But he was, at various times, furious throughout that. And that sort of led into the... Um, uh, the committee's, uh, you know, conversations about the whether the uh, the cabinet should meet together to talk about the yeah. 25th Amendment and all of that. A, a national security official uh, who apparently has only recently come forward to the committee, I think, after I believe after Cassidy Hutchinson's uh, testimony uh, had uh, his or her voice disguised to share his or her concerns about the panic among Vice President Mike Pence's Secret Service detail at the Capitol uh, on January 6th um, that apparently was heard while monitoring radio traffic uh, of, of Secret Service members contacting their families to say goodbye, etc., as if they were, you know, yeah. going down on a plane uh, on 9-11. Let me play uh, some of that audio, Richard, and I'll, I'll get some of your thoughts. The members of the BPT 
Cal at this time were starting to fear for their own lives. Um, there were a lot of there was a lot of yelling, um, a lot of um, uh, a lot of very personal calls um, over the radio. So uh, it was disturbing. I don't I'm like talking about it, but um, uh, there were calls to um, say goodbye to family members, so on and so forth. It was getting. For whatever the reason was on the ground, the VP detail thought that this was about to get very ugly. At that point, I don't know. Is the VP compromised? Is the detail kind of, like I, I don't know. Like we didn't have visibility, but it doesn't. If they're screaming and, and saying things like "say goodbye to the family," like the floor needs to know this is going to on a whole other level soon. Uh, a little hard to understand. Hopefully, it, it it was clear there. It was chilling to me that the Secret Service family member, members were calling their families to say goodbye. But, Richard, I'm struck by the fact that his or her voice needed to be disguised to offer that testimony. Yeah, it, first of all, yeah, absolutely chilling. To me, one of the most powerful moments of all the, all the hearings, mm-hmm. the fact that uh, it, it's first of all just so humanly moving. Uh, secondly, uh, that you know the, the placing of the calls reminds us how terrified. Look, I talked to a congressional staffer the day after this happened who had to be evacuated. She was still shaking. The terror that so many people went through, and and the fact that the people protecting the vice president came within feet of you know to, uh, a few feet of terrible violence, as did the vice president. But, you know, the, 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 as you say, the masking of this person's voice, you realize that not only is everyone at risk, but but someone in the uh, security system mm-hmm. of the United States of America has to fear not only a lot of strangers, but potentially other people within the national security mm-hmm. apparatus, mm-hmm. which gets us to the whole question of, was my, was uh, Vice President Pence afraid to get in the car that day and be whisked off somewhere? Yep. We need to, you know, are we going to get to the bottom of that? What happened to the deleted tweets by the Secret Service? Is there a split within the Secret Service? You know, I mean, there's so much we don't know about this that ups the stakes enormously yeah. in terms of what we do and don't know about this whole coup attempt. This does seem to be. Uh, a huge uh, element of the story that has just you know, begun to emerge within the last few days about these Secret Service text messages from January 5 and 6. Uh, as we've recently learned, they were deleted. The, uh, the service says it was just a routine migration is the word they use to a new uh, to a new system, a new phone system. Now, uh, apparently, there is a criminal investigation to all of this. Uh, Richard, as as you know, someone who follows a lot of national security issues, uh, do do you buy that that this was just simply uh, ill timed migration from one system to another? Well, two things about that. One, uh, on a national security story, it's very often the case that the first story, first explanation is not the explanation. Mm-hmm. Number one. Number two, if you've already been asked for text messages. Uh, or any kind of data, you back it, you know, you provide it, uh, even if you're upgrading to a new system. Third, we've all switched, gotten new phones, right? Mm-hmm. And even though we're not large institutions like the Secret Service, 
when we get a new phone, we back it up and download it to the new phone. It's organizations do the same thing. So is it possible? Yeah, it's possible, but it is a highly suspicious story to me. I find it implausible that the Secret Service yeah. document retention policies would include leaving it up to the individual agent, whether or not they're going to do a backup of their phone. I just, I don't, I don't think that makes any sense, and I doubt that that is true because the Secret Service is supposed to be really on type of cyber cybersecurity. So I, I I, I fear that there's going to be a lot more coming out about this, and I really fear that we're going to find out that maybe this, uh, the Secret Service was compromised. Uh, Heather, you want That's to That's what I was trying to say, but with more words. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, in fact, I just read uh, that CNN's broken a story that, they, that there are 10 Secret Service personnel that they've been looking at that have text messages that were sent around that time and were deleted doesn't say which Secret Service personnel, but I think we all have kind of an idea of who they might be, including this, you know, the, the people who were around Donald Trump and perhaps some of the people who were around Mike Pence. I mean, we don't know why they would delete anything, the Mike Pence people, but, you know, you never know. Um, it's been clear to me from the time, the moment that we heard that, that what Mike Pence said to the to his his uh, the guy who runs his Secret Service detail when they were down in the basement and they were trying to get him in the car, and he said, you know, I'm not, you know, I know you and I trust you, but I don't, but I'm not getting in that car because I don't trust them or so- something to that effect. Yeah. Um, and Keith Kellogg, his national security advisor, said to Orrin Nato, this Secret Service guy who'd been promoted into a political position in the White House mm-hmm. and By has Trump. since gone back to the Secret Service, yeah. like yep. that's normal. Yeah. Um, and he was talking to Keith Kellogg, the national security uh, guy for Mike Pence, and said, you know, we've got to get him out of there. And, and Kellogg says, hey, I know you guys. You know, you'll take him to Alaska. Well, what that meant, you know, there are two ways of looking at that. One is, well, you'll take him to Alaska to keep him safe, ha, ha, ha. Or... He'll take him to Alaska so that he can't certify the vote. Yeah, exactly. Right? That's my right. And so, you know, that's what we're really looking at. Was there something going on with the Secret Service around this whole idea of, you know, of getting of Mike Pence being not being allowed to certify the vote? And we found out something in the in the hearing on Thursday that I thought was kind of interesting. They had the big fight, you know, that Cassidy Hutchison. Um, you know, talked about in the beast or in the in the, S- the limo, SUV, yeah. uh, going to go because Trump wanted to go up to the White House. Yeah. Apparently, they came back to the White House and they sat there for forty five minutes, not sure at that point if they were going to the White House, going to the Capitol or yeah. not. Um, they were on, you know, they were on standby. He, he wanted to, to he still wanted to get there. there. Yeah, he still wanted to get there. And he almost got them to do it, it sounds like. And, and to me, what, what this speaks of is that, of course, the, the, the January 6th committee has been putting forth this uh, evidence toward this seven-point plan, the seven-pronged plan that right. Trump, uh, you know, has uh, was in charge of, uh, clearly, at this point. We, I think they have demonstrated that. But I think what we may find out here is that Number seven on the plan was hurling the mob to stop the certification at the Capitol, but there might have been a 7.5 or a 7.2 uh, part of it, where 7A. if all else fails, 7A, get Pence out of the building there, their way. Well, there was a statement, well, statement from Chuck Grassley that he was going to be in charge, uh, I think, the right. day before, because yeah. Chuck Grassley right. was the president pro tem of the Senate. If the vice president isn't there, it falls to him to oversee this joint session of Congress. Uh, it kind of seems like that was maybe the plan, Richard. Yes, and I want to get back to the Secret Service just for a second to say that 
the importance of this issue can't be overstated because this gets back to uh, the long-term infiltration of the military, of the intelligence services, of the Secret Service, FBI, other of the police forces around the country by extreme right-wing organizations. You know, our friend Dave, uh, our, all of our friend Dave Newark and other people, people, I guess not work, but and others have been writing about this uh, for a long time. It's something that's terrifying. It's something that could lead to a real kind of coup in this country. And I just wonder if there isn't something scarier than any of us have even suspected going on. It is not just centered around Donald Trump, but might be spreading like a cancer, and it's something I think we have to really keep an eye on here. Well, and I agree, and 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 Richard, I think this is one of the reasons why you are so wrong about your earlier assessment, which <laughs> is that I think they are s- sifting through an, a mountain of information, trying to get to the truth. I think that's one of the reasons why there will be more hearings in September, I think, as they look at each of these pieces, because... Uh, you know, Liz Cheney says the dam has just begun to break. Uh, so, I, you know, I think getting all of this information out there is bringing in more information. So that means Maybe they we will get done to a it. bad presentation. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so grumpy well, today. I just, isn't I just, it? just to add, I think, <laughs> I think, I think, I think I've been thinking, sitting here thinking about what Richard said, and I think that one, one of the things that I think he may be, that he is right about is that, you know, this is essentially what, you know, what the lawyers all call a hub-and-spoke case, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's not, it's a hub-and-spoke conspiracy, mm-hmm. which is not that it's not where this bottom-up, you know, there's some guy at the top, and, mm-hmm. you know, there's a bunch of people underneath him necessarily kind of, you know, just fo- directly following his orders uh, on the basis of a part- one particular plan. What this was was a conspiracy in which the the president was at the center, who's a hub, and there were all these other spokes of different things that were going on at the same time, not necessarily connected, although some of them were. And well, I think they're so all, they're all connected to the, to the hub, at least. To the hub, but they're Trump not necessarily connected yeah. to each other. Right. And so, you know, they, they, so they right. were trying, you know, or, or in other words, they were, you know, throwing spaghetti at the wall to see what would stick. And so they had all these things. One of the plots was very clearly uh, the, the January 6th plot. We know that. I mean, I think that's been been proven. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in that kind of a case, and I'm not a lawyer, but I think what what perhaps would save the hearings from Richard's perspective would have been a real closing argument in which you brought mm-hmm. all the spokes together with a real argument, not a hearing where you have anybody. You know, you don't have any more testimony at that point. You just have you just tell the story. If they well, had taken two hours at the end, maybe they will in the future, but at the, they didn't in this one. I, uh, t- take you know two hours at the end to just pull the whole story together as you would in a in a, in a prosecution of a of a hub and spoke conspiracy. You would then tell the story in narrative form after having laid out all these these different plots, which is well, what they were doing I, from yeah, the, and the, the first. I have to get to a break here, uh, but I, I, I do want to say that, yeah, uh, initially the committee had said that they would have another hearing a few months down the road before they released their final report, which I think might be that, that, that hearing where they pull all of that together. That was prior to them saying that they're going to have more hearings in September. Right. 
Right. Um, so, you know, everything is, is still moving here. I have to get to a break. Uh, hopefully one of you guys can give me a yes or no answer, because one thing that jumped out at me uh, that I think we learned on Thursday night, you know, we had all heard that call audio many months ago from Rudy Giuliani to... Senator Tommy Tuberville that went to the wrong answering machine or something. I think it went to Mike Lee telling uh, Tuberville that, oh, please buy some time at the Capitol so they can get the matter back to state legislatures to somehow redecide all of this. But what I did not know until Thursday, if I'm understanding this correctly, uh, is that that call happened after all of these hours of violence at the Capitol, did I understand that correctly? After the coup had actually finally been put down and, and peace generally restored so Congress could reconvene. Does anybody know? Did I understand that correctly? That call came after all of this? That's what I thought, yeah. That's what I understood. Which, to me, was amazing. I, <laughs> yeah, Richard? That, that was my understanding, but I, I, I'd have to look. All right. It was just something that caught me off guard. I, I wanted to see if you guys understood it the same way. A quick break. We are back with our closing few minutes on our broadcast special coverage with Salon's Heather Digby-Parton, Richard Eskow of The Zero Hour, Desi Doyen, and myself, Brad Friedman, right here on The broadcast. You're listening to The Bradcast. We are 100% listener-supported, thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com slash donate. Here's the worst part. Donald Trump knows that millions of Americans who supported him would stand up and defend our nation were it threatened. They would put their lives and their freedom at stake to protect her. And he is preying on their patriotism. He is preying on their sense of justice. And on January 6th, Donald Trump turned their love of country into a weapon against our capital and our Constitution. He has purposely created the false impression that America is threatened by a foreign force controlling voting machines or that a wave of tens of millions of false ballots were secretly injected into our election system or that ballot workers have secret thumb drives and are stealing elections with them. All complete nonsense. We must remember that we cannot abandon the truth and remain a free nation. In this room, in 1918, the Committee on Women's Suffrage convened to discuss and debate whether women should be granted the right to vote. This room is full of history, and we on this committee know we have a solemn obligation not to idly squander what so many Americans have fought and died for. Ronald Reagan's great ally, Margaret Thatcher, said this, let it never be said that the dedication of those who love freedom is less than the determination of those who would destroy it. Let me assure every one of you this. Our committee understands the gravity of this moment, the consequences for our nation. We have much work yet to do, and we will see you all in September. Yeah, we will. Welcome back to the broadcast, Brad Friedman for Bradblog.com. Special coverage of the final uh, hearing in the summer series of the uh, January 6th committee's 
uh, public hearings on the uh, attack on the Capitol and Donald Trump's many attempts to steal the 2020 election. Uh, very quickly, a couple of, of sort of forward looking uh, questions for each of my guests here. Heather Parton of Salon and Richard Escow of the Zero Hour. Heather, let me start with you there. I, I hate to say it, but uh, your very, very good friend, Liz Cheney, who we heard there, um, <laughs> who is uh, most likely to lose her primary in a couple of weeks where she's running for reelection in uh, in Wyoming on August 16. Uh, but I believe well, she has made a hell of a case for herself, frankly, as you, Digby, first noted here many months ago, I believe. Uh, and, and I know my listeners probably hate hearing it, but has made a very good case for herself to run for president at some point in the future, not necessarily in 2024, but in the future beyond that is 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 the hatred of her among Republicans so bad that that can never be? Or does it come in, you know, a few years after Trump is in jail and the GOP tries to reinvent itself, et cetera? Well, there was a time when I used to, to I mean, long before January 6th, or even probably even maybe even before Trump, that I used to call her the most dangerous woman in America. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and I saw her, you know, she everybody was always saying, oh, Nikki Haley will be the first Republican, you know, woman nominee. And I was like, no, nah, I think Liz has got her, you know, mm. she had everything, right? She had the mm-hmm. pedigree. She had the experience. She, you know, had the, the vicious kind of nature <laughs> that, that could really take her to the top in mm-hmm. Republican politics. Um, but, uh, you know, at this point, it's really hard to imagine. That doesn't mean that she won't run. I mean, I, I mm. could see her running. You know, if she wanted to be a true patriot, I've thought, perhaps she could run for president uh, and try to draw off enough people from Donald Trump if he gets the nomination to ensure that the Democrat wins. Run uh, as an run independent. Third party, right? Ah. But then I worried that all the Democrats who've been singing her praises <laughs> and thinking how terrific she is, that they'd vote for her. Well, so we can't count on that. That's, <laughs> you know, that's too big of a risk. That's so, largely you know, I'm because hoping she stays out of it. That's, that, you know. Yeah, well, that's largely your fault because you've been so nice to her over these uh, I past have not been months. that nice. I you just, have been, you, know, you yeah. love her. And, uh, <laughs> it's anyway. because when you hit the Google search for my image, often she comes up. Yes, yes. <laughs> But she has even she has better hair. Uh, I, and, and plus all those donations you've made to her. But I'm not supposed to say that on air. Anyway, uh, Richard, I'm sorry. Richard, last question uh, for you uh, here. Uh, do I have time? Yes, I do. Okay. Not long after uh, after January 6th, we had an expert on this program uh, who actually stunned me with uh, some of his comments. At that point, it seemed like January 6th was, you know, had discredited Donald Trump and everyone who was involved. But he has studied uh, coups around the world. I think it was it was Colin Clark. I think yes, it was Colin, Colin P. Clark. Clark of the Sufan Center. Yeah, and um he never he studied him around the world, never thought he'd see one here, but he argued that January 6th would not be seen as a shame and a disgrace to all of these people, but as a symbol to be looked up to, as a rallying cry. And over the sort of year and a half since then, I've been surprised to find that he's sort of absolutely right, but these hearings, I think, cut into that. Uh, you may disagree. So my question, I, I think we're at the point where this could still really go either way. January 6th can still be a Patriots rallying cry or a shameful disgrace, depending on which way this goes. Do you have any sense of which way that will ultimately go uh, in the years ahead? Yeah, it's a great question and hard to answer. I, my, my gut response is that 
for some Republicans, it will, you know, kind of marginally erode support for him in that sense, but only if there's a lot of constant follow-up, and probably there'll be more erosion if, if, if people can somehow reinforce the message that they were losers, that they screwed it up, that they, you know, they didn't pull it off because, you know, these people don't like a loser. Mm. But I think the problem is, you know, so far, uh, you know, we haven't been hammering the message that it's all built on a lie. The one thing that, uh, you know, I'm no Liz Cheney fan, trust me, but the one thing that I did like is she pointed out that these people were acting, were misguided, but acting out of, a, in many cases, out of a misguided love of country. Some were just racist. Based on them, a lie. Based on a lie. That's the message, I think, that has to keep being pushed out if we're going to erode support for it. It's like, look, you know, you thought you were doing, you thought you were fighting for your country, but you weren't. The- we all have to figure out how to get that message out, or people will continue to think they were good guys, and, you know, if need be, we have to try again. Here's a way to get that message out. Let's hold some public hearings that are really well organized and compelling, and millions of Americans watch, and everyone except for Richard Escow thinks are really, (laughs) really good. I gotta get out. Uh, My thanks to Richard R.J. Escow. You can find uh, his work as ever at This Is The Zero Hour. Dot com. Also, I think uh, his newsletter, escow.substack.com. Am I right, uh, Richard? Right, you are. All right. And also on the Twitters at RJ Escow. Heather Digby Parton, of course, can be found at salon.com and at digbysblog.net. She is on the Twitters at Digby. Five six. My thanks as well as ever to our producer Desi Doyen, to yep. all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion today, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That's made possible by those of you who support our work at bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. We'll see you there until we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>